to Deconstructing Yourself, the podcast for modern mutants interested in mindfulness, meditation, awakening, compassion for all beings, human sexuality, and much more. My name is Michael Taft, your host on the podcast, and in this episode I'm speaking with Jessica Graham. Jessica Graham is a spiritual teacher, sex and intimacy guide, and author. Jessica began studying meditation in earnest about a decade ago and began teaching soon after that. Jessica is passionate about exploring sexuality and helping others to heal, evolve, and awaken sexually. She's the author of Good Sex, Getting Off Without Checking Out, and she's also an award-winning actor and filmmaker. And of course, Jessica is the author of many of the articles on the Deconstructing Yourself blog, as well as a good friend. So without further ado, I give you the episode that I call Enlightened Sexuality. Hey, Jessica, welcome to Paradoxically Deconstructing Yourself. Hello, thanks for having me. Yeah, I say paradoxically because, of course, you've collaborated with me on the Deconstructing Yourself blog for something like seven years at this point. Yeah, I think it's six, but yeah, quite a while. It's been a long, long time. And you are hitting new heights in your teaching work and movie work and career in general by just releasing a new book. So tell us about the book. So the book is called Good Sex, Getting Off Without Checking Out. The, um, what is it, a subtitle? Is that what you call the... It's a subtitle. A subtitle. The subtitle actually came from my first Mindful Sex article that I wrote for Deconstructing Yourself, which was Mindful Sex, Getting Off Without Checking Out. And I would say that article is why I have a book now, because that article was very popular. Yeah, it was a big hit. Yeah, and I was able to continue to utilize that audience and, and support that audience with the work that I was exploring. And so, yeah, so it turned out that I got a call from a publisher wanting to publish a book about it. And I said, okay, I'll do that. <laughs> and, uh, and, you know, it's been a tumultuous couple of years to get to this point, but the book is now out. It came out on November 7th. Congratulations. From, thank you. From North Atlantic Books, a really wonderful publisher. And um, yeah, it's out in the world now. It's been born. It's so funny with books because there's the reason you write something. There's the thing that you want to say. Sometimes it takes a whole book to figure out what you want to say. And by the time you get done, you now understand what it is you're really talking about. Sometimes it's not that way. But I'm just curious for you, that material was fresh in one way six years ago and has continued to evolve the way I understand it. So now as you are seeing yourself on stage around the country and being interviewed for some pretty big stuff. I'm curious, what's coming up for you with that material now? What's fresh post the book? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Well, I mean, I think there's a number of different threads off of that. One is, and it's basically what I've started every interview with because I think it's important. One is the Me Too movement and what's happening in Hollywood and in the country in general, this big veil being lifted back on sexual abuse, sexual harassment, rape. Uh, for me, that really affected my experience of my book because when I wrote that book, I have a chapter which is about safe sex, and I include in that the topic of consent. And I tell my personal story of some non-consensual sex that I had as a 14-year-old with someone in their 20s. And when I wrote the book, I didn't consider myself a rape survivor. And I said that in the book. I said, Given the same situation, you might consider yourself a rape survivor because we all get to decide what's true for ourselves. But I went to record the audiobook and I was in the studio trying to read that section and I couldn't get through it. And I had to stop and like cry in the booth and then go back and record the book as written. So what I've done now is whenever I speak, I always tell that story that now I do consider myself a rape survivor. And I do see that what happened when I was 14 and on LSD and drunk and high and a 20-something-year-old had sex with me, that's not okay. And that it's not my fault and that there's no need to downplay it just because other people had more vicious rapes, rapes that look different than mine. And so the changing culture has changed my experience around the book in that way. Yeah, we're just seeing today that the Me Too movement got named 
Time Magazine's Person of the Year. Yes, which is just amazing. It's been so amazing to watch culture change Hmm. so quickly right in front of my eyes. And, you know, one of the things that's really important to me and I've been thinking about and talking about a lot is this idea of gathering together spiritual activists, gathering together folks who aren't interested in just saying, that's bad, I'm going to shame you and cast you out, but people who are actually interested in saying, well, what's underneath of that? Why did Louis C.K. feel that he needed to masturbate in front of these women? Why did Moore feel like he had to have sex with 14-year-olds? And it's very easy to quickly go to bad, wrong, evil, villain, cast out, exile. And to me, that continues to create the problem. Right. Well, not minimizing the negative effects on the victims of those actions, we still can have a more nuanced take on what's behind the perpetrators' activities. Exactly. And yeah, absolutely not minimizing the experience, right? If I could, I would press charges on the man that raped me. There's a statute of limitations, though. That was a long time ago. But I would, because I think he does deserve to have consequences. And I doubt I was the only one. Mm -hmm. So it's not about not having consequences and swift consequences like Harvey Weinstein should never be able to make another movie again. I don't necessarily feel the same way about Louis C.K. I don't know. I don't know what my opinion is as far as should he be back in his career again at some point. We aren't there yet. Right now we're in this space of let's uncover this and start to discuss this and deal with the problem. But I think we really do a disservice to ourselves and to our culture in general if we just go into black and white. And it's the same with politics. It's the same with everything. People want to feel safe. They want to have a sense of solidity and stability and ground beneath them. And that's actually impossible. And on some level, we all know it. And so we get pulled into this black and white thinking. And when you take someone like Louis C.K. and you say, your apology wasn't right, your apology was wrong, here's all the reasons it was wrong, and we publicly shame him instead of educating him, then we just compound the problem. Yeah. Because he wasn't masturbating at women because he feels great about himself or because he had a great childhood or because he's mentally well. That's an interesting new verb you used, masturbating at somebody. <laughs> <laughs> the last time I had that happen, I was in Brazil on a nude beach, which, you know, you guess you have to expect a certain amount. But there was just this man who... <laughs> He just kept finding these spots where the sun would shine on him like a spotlight, and he would just stare at me and masturbate. I was wearing a bathing suit, and I would avoid him and sort of go into the like the thing that women do, which is like, oh, am I doing something wrong? Oh, I'm embarrassed. And then I was like, no. And so I just lined myself up with him, you know, maybe I don't know how many yards away, not that far away. And I just looked him right in the eyes, and I didn't move. And eventually, he looked away, and he stopped doing it. And I didn't do that to shame him. I just stepped into my power in the moment. And that's happening for women and men, because it's not just women who are experiencing this. It's not just men and women. There's many genders and non-genders, and it's sexual abuse and harassment and rape happens to everybody. Women seem to get the brunt of it. But the trans community, trans women, they are constantly raped and beaten and killed. And it's important that we talk about that too. Yeah. So in any case, this cultural shift has started to show me what one of my missions here is. And it's about connection rather than disconnection. It's about vulnerability rather than shame. And I did it when Trump was elected. I did Facebook live streaming where we sent him love and kindness. I remember, yeah. And it really made some people mad, and I understand. And I try to do this work in a kind and compassionate way. Um, but even with sex, just talking about sex is really uncomfortable for people, and they want to put it in a container. So they want to put it in the tantric sex container or the orgasmic meditation container or the sex positive container, whatever. They want to put it in a container in order to be able to talk about it. And my work is to show them that there's no container and so that comes into play with sex, and I run into a lot of pushback because it's such a triggering, edgy topic for people. And I forget that sometimes. <laughs> right. Now, do you mean there's no one right container or literally no container at all? 
No container. So unpack that a little bit for me. Yeah. So, okay. So we need to create a container, right? We need to create a container in which we feel safe and we feel seen and we feel that we can say what is authentic for us. And so I very much believe in creating this sort of symbolic container. When I work with folks, whether it's one-on-one or in a group setting or even just in a casual conversation, to create a container, to join with the people that are there to create a collaborative container. That collaborative container is based on setting an intention. And setting an intention is made out of thoughts and emotions. And thoughts and emotions are completely impermanent phenomena and just such a tiny speck of anything. It's both, right? It's the non-dual experience of, yes, we're creating this container within which we can have this conversation. I recently facilitated a Me Too circle for women. There's a container to create. And there's no container. And by no container, I mean... Once you're aware of what constructs the container, then you just can't believe in the container anymore. Yes. To me, this harkens back to one of the major themes that's been accidentally or seemingly accidentally evolving over the course of many podcasts, and that is the theme of what we would call meta-rationality. So the idea that there is never one right container for anything and that all containers are contingent And that in order to engage with something, we actually need a container. We just don't need to get stuck on it. As you say, they're conceptual. They're made of thoughts and feelings. There may be science behind them or not, but even that is just in a one way of looking at it, a first person subjective way of looking at it, just more thoughts and feelings. That's why I bring that up. It's like, I imagine that there's a lot of ways to engage with sexuality mindfully or sexuality in a spiritual manner. And we don't want to get stuck on any one container. And yet, it's hard to imagine how you would do it with no container at all. Yeah, I think, you know, last night I set an intention at the event, set an intention. What uh, event? This was uh, Wild and Awake Good Sex for Couples at the Battery in San Francisco, which is a members club. And then I was able to bring in some of my pals like you. It was great. Thank you. Thanks for being there. But I set an intention in container at the beginning, but then there's no container. (laughs) Now, sometimes when I teach workshops and I have enough time, I have a trajectory. We're going to hit these points. But I had an hour and a half with these folks who most of them I didn't know. And it ended up creating its own thing. It just created its own thing. Now, if there was a container and if it was like, this is what I'm going to do here with these people, then we lose that opportunity Mm -hmm. for exploration, for curiosity, for discovery, for possibility. And so I 100% believe in having resource, having the ability to stop and say, oh, I need to just find something that feels safe in my body, or I need to go to this group where I feel really seen and heard. And that's part of being a human, and it's an important part to have that. But, yeah, we don't want to get stuck there because it's just so incredibly limiting. It's fascinating how easy it is for us as human beings to find something to believe in that helps, and that's a good thing, but then that belief system itself becomes a trap. And where we were getting assistance and support in the past, now it's actually almost like a design fly in the brain. Mm -hmm. (laughs) It happens so often. And yet I think that at least in the communities that I'm involved in, there seems to be more and more clarity about that and more and more ability to release some of the hooks of really being tied into a belief system. And I'm seeing a lot of real freedom coming from that. It's amazing how awake someone can be in their body and even awake to aspects of no self and even awake to some deeper stuff and yet be fully like Velcroed to a belief system that is totally constricting them. It's very fascinating. It is. And I have a lot of like compassion and understanding for it because I'm also a human and there's the areas that I'm still operating in that sort of dynamic. They become very subtle, right? They are not big, obvious ones. But I think that's part of the work. You know, the more and more subtle layers, you just keep gently touching into them and seeing what wants to peel back. But yeah, I think in general, in all areas, but certainly in the area of sexuality and sex, um, people are missing out a lot. It's just possibility, you know, rather than perfectionism, possibility, rather than shame, vulnerability. It's actually a really easy step It does require an untangling of the human experience and the psycho-spiritual wiring. 
So talk more about that untangling. That sounds like a good direction. Yeah. So when someone comes to me with, quote unquote, the problem, I find more and more I don't speak to the problem. I'm kind of doing a, uh, did you ever see Inner Space? I think so. From like the 80s, I think. It's like this guy goes inside the body of someone else in his little like submarine thing. Sure. So that was one of me and my dad's favorite films. Or Fantastic Voyage, same thing. Oh, right. Mm -hmm. Raquel Welch. Right. Inside the guy's bloodstream. Right, exactly. I'm not saying I'm inside anyone's body in a little submarine, but there's a taste of I'm following threads that I don't know anything about, but I'm just following them and they're leading me to this question. And I ask the question and then by feeling into what the person's experiencing, I might ask another question. I might bring their attention to the way that their right shoulder is slightly raised, you know, and just say, what would happen if you released it? And it might come back to something really simple, like what mom said when I was five. But it's this sort of intuitive untangling that I think we can do for ourselves. It's helpful to have a guide, but we can do for ourselves. And it's sort of a combination of mindfulness of self, inquiry, self-love practice and really just like putting on our explorer hat and going in so we can talk about it in really practical terms of there are thoughts and there are emotions there's visual thinking auditory thinking and emotional sensations and you can with a meditation practice learn to untangle them so that for example when the thing happens that always causes you to have an anxiety attack comes up in the form of thought and emotion, if you know how to untangle it, you don't necessarily have to have the anxiety attack. And that's great. And I feel like that's like level one, like that's the bare minimum to be able to do that. And it might take 10 years to get to the point where that's really automatic and easy. But then there's a much more subtle, nuanced kind of untangling that happens. And it is hard to put into words, which is why I haven't really written about it yet, because it's an experiential thing. Please try to put it into words for us. So, okay. So about, what was it, maybe five, six years ago, my skin was breaking out. And I had dealt with this on and off for years. And I'm an actor, and and I do some modeling. So having your skin broken out is not ideal. But I took it very personally. It felt very personal to me. And because at that point, a lot of things no longer felt personal, it really stood out as something personal. And so I sat down and I did some stream of consciousness writing about how I felt about my skin. And then I closed my eyes and I started observing what was alive in my body, what emotions were firing, what thoughts were firing. Then I took a question, which was, I don't remember now what it was, but maybe it's something like, what is this sadness or anger about your skin connected to? I just asked the question and then let that drop down into the body. And the body started to guide me to a memory, which guided me to another sensation, which guided me to another memory. And then I came out of the practice and and did the stream of consciousness writing again, and then came back in and did the same practice. And eventually what happens is you see the threads very, very clearly, and they completely just untangle for you. And then usually you say, oh... I feel like I'm not lovable. Mm -hmm. And it's nothing to do with the skin. It's like it's this deep sense of not lovable. And even folks that had really stellar childhoods can still kind of boil that down, like not good enough, not lovable. When you touch that root, everything else kind of just deconstructs. And I haven't had those kinds of personal feelings around my skin. And in fact, my skin has gotten much, much better, which is interesting. So I do a similar thing with other people where I kind of guide them through that process in the moment. Would you feel comfortable describing that as a kind of deconstructive inquiry or? Yeah, I would say it's a deconstructive inquiry through the context of radical self-love and acceptance. Hmm. And in that process you described, Where are you bringing in the radical self-love and acceptance? Right. So when I would find one of the nuggets of maybe it's like, well, if my skin's broken out, my boyfriend's not going to like me and he's going to leave. And so I would address that self. So that self that's arising, that's fearing abandonment. And so there's thoughts and feelings of fear and abandonment, and that's arising as the self of the moment. 
Yes. It could be as simple as saying, I love you. It could be as simple as wrapping yourself up with a blanket. It's almost like an energetic thing. It's just like just sending so much love and acceptance to that part. And it's so amazing how quickly people take to this. I've been kind of amazed now that I've been doing it more with others where they just get it. It just makes sense. And it kind of doesn't make sense, you know, in a way, like, and even in describing, it's like, well, what is this thing? But it works. And it's also just my philosophy. Everything that is arising is deserving of love. Mm-hmm. Not necessarily love like, oh, I love you, but love like universal, unconditional, radical, impersonal love. And so if you were to describe to someone how to do this process, would you include a step of self-love or is it just infused in every moment of doing it? And if it is, then how do they connect to that? Well, ideally it's fused in every moment, but that just comes with practice. Let's say I ask some of my clients and students to text me daily and just tell me they did their practice. And they might say, you know, I found this part that's really judgmental and I'm there's this person at work and I just keep having all these thoughts about what a jerk she is or whatever. And I feel really bad. I feel really bad that I feel that way because I shouldn't be judgmental. And my direction is give your judgmental self a whole lot of love. Yeah. Just like love the heck out of it. Not to make it go away. Not to destroy it, but to actually just fully love it and embrace it. And so, you know, you can do that same thing if you sit down in a meditation and you are focusing on thought and emotion arising and passing. You can just do this little shift where everything that arises, you offer love. And then eventually everything that arises is love. Mm. Even the thought about how you hate yourself, Mm -hmm. even the thought about how you want to punch your sister in the face or something. I don't want to punch my sisters in the face. But whatever the thoughts that are just like so awful, the parts of self that we're so like ashamed of and we want to meditate away or we want to medicate away or we want to self-help away or we want to go to every workshop and get that doesn't work. I don't think that works. The self-love piece is the true transformer in my opinion. When I touch into the kind of work you're describing, you did use this term that resonates more strongly for me of just radical self-acceptance. So there's this feeling of really, really down to the bottom, trusting your mind, trusting your being, and just whatever comes up is absolutely exactly what needed to come up. And you know very well how we can sometimes do this thing of like pretending to accept something so it'll go away. It's one of the first tricks meditators learn is to accept something and, hey, it dissolved. I felt this really painful body sensation and normally I would never meditate on it. And the teacher had me meditate on it and try to accept it. And I accepted a little bit and it, what do you know, it dissolved and went away. And so then You know, and of course I did this for years. The move is like, okay, I'm going to accept stuff so it goes the fuck away. (laughs) And it doesn't really work very well. Yeah, I mean, there's some merit in it and there's definitely some benefit of it. But ultimately, it's really just a very early stop on the ride. That's right. And a later stop is just being okay with whatever's coming up. And it sounds like impossible in one way, but the more that you touch into that, the more you see that by accepting all that stuff that you think is wrong with you, it's very odd. It's like a kind of almost like alchemy where it stops being wrong with you. Yeah, for sure. I mean, I think for me, like dealing with health stuff and pain stuff and it being this thing to solve and that just didn't help and it wasn't until I just fully gave into it and accepted it and um, made friends with it that I started to get all these gifts but the honest truth is I have the automatic response to accept and love things I mean I remember being like rolled into the hospital a couple years ago out of a meditation retreat and I go wow, what am I going to get out of this? Mm -hmm. This is going to be rad. Like, what's going to unfold? And what's unfolded in the last two years is just this huge amount of love and acceptance for myself, for others, and also a whole new level of awakening that I didn't... It's totally taken me by surprise. 
So for listeners who, of course, aren't aware, you have had some pretty serious health challenges in the past few years, including being hospitalized several times and so on. And so let's talk about that. What about that has really brought this new level of awakening for you? How did you work that, if I can use that word that yeah. way? Well, it's just been surrender. And the thing when you're dealing with illness or pain or depression or anxiety or, you know, any of these like sort of intense experiences is that it can bring you to your knees. And if you have the, or to your belly right on the floor, and if you have the practice and the tools to be with that, then it starts to create this surrender, which then leads to surrender in all kinds of areas. And every time I go through a big surrender, I'm like, oh, so that's surrender. (laughs) (laughs) So who knows what surrender will be in two years from now. Yeah, it really has given me um, this beautiful surrender to the body, which has led to a whole new relationship with the body, which has led to this unclenching inside of me which has led to a more consistent experience of, as Ajashanti would say, you know, dancing with emptiness, mm-hmm. falling into grace, allowing the cells of the body to do what they're doing, which they are anyway. It's just all the resistance to that that causes the issue. And yeah, I would not change any of it. You know, I've had health issues my entire life. And now that I'm experiencing life from this activity, I'm like, oh, I wouldn't change any of it. Hmm. I wouldn't change any of it. So for people who are having big health issues, what could you say, uh, especially if they have a deep meditation practice, how would you recommend they work with that? Well, it depends on where you are with your practice. It has to start with being able to be with and accept the sensations which just requires a daily practice of being with and accepting the sensations. And if you do that for a while, you start to have a different relationship with it. If you're somebody who's a long-term practitioner and has done many years of this sort of work, I think for one, it's noticing the self that arises in relation to the health stuff, noticing that there is a self there and that it is pretending that it can solidify and being willing to accept that because we can get a little spiritually arrogant when we've been doing this a long time and bypass a lot. And so I think it's really honoring that there's this human having this experience of suffering and of resistance and being with that human and letting that human go through its emotional experience. And then it's like anything, it just needs to be one moment at a time. And one moment at a time, it'll be revealed. I mean, there's techniques you can do, right? Like, there's things I can say, oh, do X, Y, and Z. But that kind of comes back to where we started, which is like, I'm not so interested in that anymore. Mm-hmm. Not that I won't offer techniques, and I do. And my book is full of techniques, and I teach techniques in my class. And people that I work with one-on-one, they get really specific instructions and videos and literature that they are going to take home and they're going to study and they're going to do and they're going to check back in with me and we're going to make tweaks. So it's not at all to say that I don't utilize technique and container in that way. But what I'm finding is in these kinds of conversations or at my book events, I'm a lot less interested in saying, let's solve the problem. Mm -hmm. I'm more interested in saying, like, what's that problem made of? What's underneath of that problem? What happens if you look at all the space around that problem and just get out of this sort of categorizing and giving value to this thought or that thought. It just doesn't feel that useful to me at this point. Right. You know, to me, there's a, there's a place where it gets very hard to talk about because there is a thing that people are bringing up and that they do want a solution for and can even get a solution for using some of the many techniques you described And yet there's this other thing happening where we can be guided into or allow some space to just let that stuff happen and something new can arise. Something very, very different can start to happen. Something wild. Something wild, yes. Jessica's new site is called yourwildawakening.com. Yeah, the thing I'm building, and I'm not quite sure what it will eventually turn into, but it's Wild Awakening, and the site is yourwildawakening.com. So yeah, something wild can arise. And are you finding that you're able to teach that? Yeah. The other thing I'm finding is like that the more that I follow this thread of 
allowing the animal in me, allowing the cells of me, of this body to lead. The more simplified it all is, I know that the people who are going to benefit from what I'm offering are going to show up and the people that aren't going to benefit from what I'm offering are not going to come. Or maybe they'll come once and not come again. And so, for example, like at an event last night, there were a few people who really got what I was doing. And that's all I care about, those few people. And not that I don't care about the other ones. My thing on this planet is not to put anything in a box and deliver it with a bow. Mm-hmm. Which is why I'm a sexuality guide and I'm also a nude model. Mm-hmm. Which is why I'm a filmmaker and I make all these dark films and I'm this spiritual teacher who's always talking about self-love. I'm really allowing for the variety of this activity let's call Jessica, to just kind of do what it wants to do. And that's not going to be everybody's cup of tea. Mm-hmm. And I'm so okay with that. I think there was a time when I was younger where I really felt like I had to be able to reach everyone. Right. And so I needed my message to be palatable. And now I just realize more and more that that's just not what I'm here to do. I'm definitely not here to help people believe their stories more. What are you currently seeing as, if there is one, as kind of the edge of most of the people who are showing up? What are students out there working with for you? A lot of people are working with what's going on culturally, mm-hmm. what's going on you know, politically and environmentally and, and all of that. And it's very challenging for folks not to get very attached because in the material human world, there's like these very obvious like right and wrong things that are happening, right? Like mm-hmm. there's people who are trying to reduce suffering and there's people who are trying to increase suffering whether they know it or not right and so it's it's very obvious it's like having a president who says that he can just grab women's pussies that's objectively bad yes <laughs> right and so people get really caught in that and they sometimes have a really hard time getting out of it because the world just keeps barraging and there's this wrong thing and there's this wrong thing and there's this wrong thing and we're sort of in that mode right now where all of the shadow material is revealing itself which i think is awesome i am so stoked for what's going on right now mm-hmm. i'd rather we don't die in a nuclear holocaust but if we do the planet's going to be fine and whatever's going to be here next will be here and have its experience so i'm just kind of <laughs> I don't really want to like have my skin burned off or like have my friends like melt. But at the same time, I'm totally okay with it. But it is hard for folks, especially folks who have a spiritual practice who are really in touch with other people's suffering and who are really in touch with wanting to make a positive change in the world, which is a natural side effect of spiritual practice. It can be very hard for them to untangle from their opinion and their black and white thinking of right and wrong. And so what I do is I just invite them into, I tell them they are Trump. Mm -hmm. I say you are Trump and Trump is you. And the people who have been doing this a while and who have a certain consistency in a non-dual state get it. And a lot of people don't. And I think, you know, if I wanted to build some like perfect career where I'm this teacher, then I wouldn't do that. Yeah. <laughs> because people don't like it. But I do find that I'm starting to gather those people, the people that want that, that want the sort of strong but loving medicine that want the fierce but beautiful grace are going to show up because some part of them wants it too. But yeah, I think that's happening all over, not just with my students, but in this country, a lot of right and wrong and getting really stuck in one paradigm rather than saying, oh yeah, there are these paradigms that we can see where there's these people on this side and these people on this side, you know, we're more polarized than ever. But there's also a lot more. And what would you say that a lot more consists of? It's just like I can feel some of the light reflecting off my eye right now from the light across from me. And there's like a little bit of a wave moving through my torso, but it's kind of joining the sound of my voice. And I'm aware of thoughts that are coming up, many layers of thoughts coming up about what I'm saying right now. And there's a breath. And here's this moment. Yes, so there's the moment-by-moment sensory experience of being a human being. Yeah, and then there's more, (laughs) Mm -hmm. right? So it's like, I think anybody that tells you what that more is, is a charlatan. Mm -hmm. Really? (laughs) Tell me more about that. How can we know? 
Yeah. Right? Like there's these classical experiences that we have, right? There's oneness, there's bliss and void, there's, you know, emptiness, there's, you know, the universal love, there's there's the no self, there's the, you know, deep interconnectedness, right? Like there's all these sort of traditional classical experiences that people have. Um, many of your listeners have had on some level. And that's great. And those experiences, just like an experience with drugs, are facilitators, are opening doors, are giving you a glimpse at something bigger than what your human mind can comprehend. And that's just a small piece of it. So how can we take like the experience of oneness? Now, once that's really just a reality, then you know that there's no separation. Mm -hmm. It's just known. But it's known through experience of self. Like, <laughs> like, and so how could I possibly say that I know what the more is? Mm -hmm. Because the only way, even if I'm in some peak state where I know the workings of the universe, that's just the workings of the universe. Or it's just your idea about the workings of the universe. Well, sure, exactly, yeah. exactly. The idea that we can really know anything or really speak truth, I'm just really not, I just can't get on board with anymore. Yeah, now you're talking my language. <laughs> <laughs> this is, yeah, I just feel so strongly, even though I know it's just thoughts and feelings, but it's really fascinating how much I am unwilling to land on knowing any truth anymore. It's a wonderful thing for achieving things in the relative world, and it's never absolutely true. Not ever. Mm-hmm in perspective of non-duality and then there is today it's true that if i don't drink any water i'll get dehydrated i'll be bummed if any of my friend's skin melts off right honestly <laughs> yeah right? so it's like we the beauty is that both it's not even both it's like it's so hard to put into words it's like because there's not like a i'm holding the ultimate reality in this hand and the physical material world reality in this hand no it's just well, we really have no idea how long we will be existing in this form, in this current reality. And I really would invite people to stop wasting time. Mm -hmm. Now, on one hand, time starts getting really interesting, right? Like, <laughs> but again, in the human sort of animal, material world realm. And look, this is easy for me to say. I'm a white middle-class woman. Mm -hmm. Do whatever you want. Have fun. But I think that it translates. It's just maybe um, it looks different. I'm not sure. Like, I'm not sure what that looks like to someone in a war-torn country who doesn't have enough food. Like, how do you say, stop wasting time and enjoy being <laughs> this human? <laughs> you know, I don't know. I don't know. But I do know that... Um, they don't need a better yoga class today, probably. Right. Yeah. Right, exactly. But either do I, ultimately. <laughs> it's nice, you know. Um, so I would say, like, really take a look at where your energy, where your attention is going. Because this could all be over really soon. And that's why I'm very excited about the folks that are interested in exploring, bringing spirituality into their sex life and into their sexuality. Because... There are so many people that are living like maybe 5% of what's possible in that realm. And so are you using spirituality to make sexuality better or using sexuality to deepen spirituality or is it just completely different than that? Well, I got this great review on Goodreads. It was like, well, I ordered this book because I liked the topic, but I realize it's just a trick. She's trying to make you meditate. And I was like, <laughs> yes, it's so true. <laughs> I'm putting it, you know, a spoonful of sugar, right? And not to say that I don't enjoy the sex part. Like, I'm writing and talking and teaching about sex because there's a part of the animal that lights up and enjoys that. And so I am following that thread. But yeah, the book is a beginner's guide for spiritual awakening. Mm -hmm. And through the context of sexuality, because sex and death are two of the most obvious human experiences and two of the things we hardly talk about or explore, it feels important to be willing to dive into that pool because I'm able to. Right. Even though the book contains some non-dual elements and pointing out 
in general, the structure of what you're doing is Vipassana and particularly Shinzen Vipassana. Mm-hmm. And so if we imagine that the overall effect of the book is how to use Shinzen Vipassana to work with your sexuality and to deepen your intimacy, but also to get better at contacting your own thoughts and feelings about everything, I'm curious how you would work with someone and we'll just say probably a lot of listeners of this podcast, who is already really good at Vipassana or already really good at untangling and yet still, especially in Puritanical America, but also with Puritanical elements of Buddhism and Hinduism and other meditation traditions, has maybe not worked so much with that aspect of themselves. They might be wonderful at certain types of no-self experiences or certain types of non-dual awakenings and yet feel ashamed or shut down or unfulfilled or whatever in their sexuality. Well, I think the first step is to just really offer yourself a bunch of love in that space and to just acknowledge that you're not alone. You're in good company. Many, many people and many, many spiritual people haven't swam in those waters for the reasons you mentioned, as well as others. And then from there, you can really be quite practical with it. I always start people with embodiment. I almost always start people with mindful masturbation, which I outline in the book, which is really just, it's like mindful dishwashing, mindful car driving. It's just involves your genitals and the rest of your body. Try not to do it in front of your employees. (laughs) Right, don't do it in front of your employees. Always consensual. Um, But yes, I'll give people the homework of set a timer for 15 minutes and create a, a comfortable space for yourself, whether it's your bed or elsewhere. And then start by just getting in touch with the body, feeling the body. So you can use your basic mindfulness tools, Vipassana tools, to get in touch with body sensation, to recognize that there's thoughts, but At this time, that's not what you're focusing on. So when you get pulled in, come back to the body. So just scan through the body, notice sensations. And you might start the first time not even touching your genitals. The first time it might just be like dealing with the emotions that are coming up about doing this practice. Mm -hmm. Because for a lot of people, it's very confronting, even though they're all by themselves. So much is in there for so many people. You might be just crying or you might be just feeling really uncomfortable and tense and just being with those sensations. But eventually, you can begin to, you know, touch your skin. I really invite people not to go straight to the grand finale. That's not the point here. It's not about orgasm or climax at all in mindful masturbation. I ask people to not use toys or porn or their normal way. Like, if your normal way of masturbation is to kind of, like, hump a pillow, which it is for a lot of women, then you don't. You don't do that. Not because it's bad, Porn's not bad, you know, toys aren't bad, but just for this exercise, it's about really just getting in touch with your body. And you just start touching your body in different ways and seeing how it feels, and eventually you get to exploring the genitals. And all you're doing is the same meditation practice you've been doing for years, except in terms of pleasure, sexual sensation, and thoughts and emotions that arise around that. And then after you've played around with that for a while, then you bring it into your relationship or, you know, your one night stand, it doesn't matter. And you practice being embodied, just like you've practiced being embodied in your yoga class, just like you've practiced being embodied, you know, while you're mindfully parenting, you have the skill. So now you just have to direct it there. And, you know, the main issue is that people are just scared to do that. You Mm -hmm. know, the only Buddhist teacher that blurred my book was Shenzhen, and he's not even technically a Buddhist teacher. I have a long-term relationship with him, but nobody would blurb it. And maybe it's because they didn't like it or thought it was a bad book, or maybe it's because it's really scary. Because sexuality is so frowned upon for monks and nuns, because we live in a puritanical culture, or what are you imagining? I think both. And I think a lot of folks haven't opened that can of worms. Mm -hmm. And so the idea of endorsing or getting involved in any way with it is probably really confronting. Most people are not, including spiritual teachers, are not exploring that element of being human. Or if they are, it's in a very non-consensual way, right? We keep seeing a lot of that happening also. That's exactly right. It's the secrecy and the shame, and that's not spiritual, ends up resulting again and again in these sex scandals and these abuse situations. And it doesn't need to be that way. So here you have this, let's say, long-term meditator. They're doing their mindful masturbation. 
what's going to come up for them? I mean, is it super easy for most people and they just kind of have a good experience and they're tracking their thoughts and feelings? Or is it more challenging than that? It's usually more challenging. Yeah. And in, in what way? Well, when we get to a certain point with our spiritual practice and our consistency with living from a place of non-dual awareness or connection to the source or whatever you want to say, it's comfortable. And so a lot of resistance comes up around going into a territory where it might not be comfortable. Right. So you've reached this kind of local minimum of discomfort. And to get further in any direction actually involves increasing the discomfort. Yeah, and increasing the sense of self. Yeah. Because you'll then have to contend with the parts of self, the the selves that you never had to Mm -hmm. in your practice. And that's very humbling. And so somebody who's been doing this for 30 years or somebody who teaches thousands of people might not be interested in being humbled that way. And I get it. I'm not saying everybody needs to do this. I wish everyone would. So then, yeah, you're faced with your humanity. You're faced with your biology. You're faced with your trauma. You're faced with your shame. And that's uncomfortable. Now, that's not everybody. Some people just dive right in and it's great. But that's not most people. Mm -hmm. And do you feel that this area is because of the secrecy and shame around it or because of even just our cultural expectations or even our biology, do you feel like this area has a particular impact or an extra powerful impact when we begin to get in there and unpack it in this way you're describing? Absolutely. I think there are huge paradigm shifts that start to occur. Like anything, you know, if you think about like taking a class on whatever and you have that new information in you, it then affects everything. It's new information. I mean, I'm not a neuroscientist, but it's like you've lit up different parts of the brain that are kind of atrophied. (laughs) And so, I mean, look, for me, when I started really doing this work, one of the things I ran into was like a complete disillusion around sex and sexuality. And it's something that's had a very high priority for me from a very young age. And I knew that as soon as I really brought attention to my sexuality in a meaningful way and really peeled back the veil, that I was going to lose it. I was going to lose that high that I'd been getting. Yeah, this was very interesting. We were just talking a lot during that period, and then you ended up writing a really wonderful blog post, which I think is called Love Drugs. Love Drugs, yeah. Love Drugs, yeah, about this topic. So can you unpack that a little bit for people? It's really, really interesting. Sure. So we kind of have this cultural agreement that when we're in love, we can act like insane people. <laughs> um, you know, Certainly every romantic comedy movie makes that seem like the thing to do. Yeah, exactly. And it is, it, you know, when we're in that state of, you know, all those chemicals moving through the body in the beginning of a romance, it's the same as being a cocaine addict. <laughs> It's like you just need more. And so it's like, oh, I really like them. Oh, are they going to text me? Oh, they texted me. And then you get the rush of chemicals. And then you text them back. And then they don't text you back. And you crash. You're just crashing. And you're, all those chemicals are dropping out. And you're feeling horrible. And then they text you. And it all comes back again, right? And so this makes us a little nutty. You know, we're texting on the freeway. We're thinking we see the person everywhere we go. We're literally hallucinating. Sounds, <laughs> sounds like the opposite of freedom, that's for sure. Absolutely. And we just say, oh, that's just how it is to be in love. And that's fine. You know, if you don't want that taken away, then stop listening now. (laughs) (laughs) I feel like it requires a disclaimer. Spoiler alert. Yeah, Yeah, right. So when you start to really get into all the sensory experience that comes up with love and lust, you start to see it for what it is, which is thought emotion and some chemical experiences in the body and you can observe it you can witness it and just like anything else that you've done that with it totally comes apart it becomes meaningless you go through disillusion around it and then if you can just not get stuck in the self that doesn't like that for the next 10 years and instead keep allowing the untangling to occur, then you get born into a really different 
kind of sexuality that isn't based on grasping and attachment, that isn't based on so much of a personal self. So there's all this room for it to expand and contract and flow here and flow there. And it becomes this amazing adventure moment to moment. And it's totally worth it, but there is a cost. Yeah, and what's the cost? Well, the cost is you don't get high in the same way. The cost is that the pool of folks that are appropriate partners gets smaller. The cost is the self and all the selves that made up your sexuality up until that point. Mm -hmm. And I mean, it's totally worth it, but I don't know. As far as like awake or not awake, you lose everything in waking up. Mm -hmm. You lose everything. And I wouldn't ask for any of it back, but it's a very different reality to live in. And it's wonderful that so many people these days are starting to get interested in that reality and to take movements towards that reality, but it's still not the norm. Yeah. So when you were noticing the untangling of the sex-addicted self or the grasping around relationship self, whatever you want to call it, but you were noticing that dissolving and then it started to really, really dissolve. Did you go through a time period where there just was no relationship to sexuality or no desire or was there kind of what we might call like a flat spot in there where it was just like you didn't know how to relate to it? Yeah, definitely. Uh, I think more importantly, though, there was a self that was very concerned. Concerned about what? About loss, about losing, about mm-hmm. dying. Yeah. And I think what was also in there was grief and guilt and trauma and, you know, many years of unskillful behavior and not being seen and feeling misunderstood. And so I just focused on that. I went into the personal material because that's what's happening, really, and the personal material around the flat spot. Mm -hmm. And I just worked with that. And eventually, like, one of the main things that actually helped the most for me in returning to a place where there was availability of a kind of sexuality was this awakened role-playing, I think is what I call it. (laughs) And basically what it was is just like, okay, there's no self, there's no one solid self, But there are many selves arising here and there and here and there. And I'm an actor. So why don't I just hang out with the self that's like a wild sex goddess? Mm -hmm. And it became really easy. It's not even turn it on. It's just like, oh, that self is, I have that coat. I could wear that coat right now. Yeah. (laughs) When I go outside, Mm -hmm. (laughs) you know, it's like, oh, I could slip into that self for the next 45 minutes and have a great sexual adventure with my partner. And it's fine. It's not any more real or fake than any other self. Yeah, there's always the question about authenticity that comes up with this. And it's a misdirected question in a way. It's like, hey, well, how authentic was your other self that was arising to begin with? I mean, it's just sort of this random mix of genetics and the stuff that happened to you when you were a kid. It's, you know, your authentic junk drawer of stuff that happened to you. And I mean, here's the thing, like, I'm a big believer in working both sides of that pendulum. It's like really going into the personal selves and healing because the trauma gets in the way of the awakening. Mm. When we have that unresolved stuff, whether it was, you know, just that somebody looked at you funny once or whether it was that, you know, you experienced some horrific, horrible, you know, sexual abuse. It's having an effect on your ability to surrender into the moment-by-moment experience because you're protecting yourself. And so for me, in my process, there were times I had to just pause and get really personal and get into the personal details of like what happened and how that's manifested in my body and how that's manifested in my psychology. And then when I do that work and let it go, there's this deepening of connection to everything. There's a deepening of this like ability to completely release resistance to the flow that I'm a part of. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and so when you put on the, quote, coat of being a wild sex goddess or whatever, 
It's not about it being fake or inauthentic. You've worked with what previously had been called authentic, which again, it's personal and it's not somehow less than, but neither is it more than. It's just the given for now. Mm -hmm. And so as those things start to transform and change in various ways, some of them dissolving and coming back in new ways or dissolving and just dissolving or whatever, new authentic selves can arise that are their own new thing. It's just so fascinating that for some reason we often are confronted with the idea that those are inauthentic. Yeah. And you even said, I'm an actress. And it's like you could hear that idea of, oh, you're pretending. Mm-hmm. Just fake it till you make it. Yeah. But that's not really what you're saying. No. You know, you said to me years ago, early in this process, I was freaking out because I was very attached to the idea of me as an actor. And everything just started deconstructing. And I no longer was attached to that identity. But there was this self-arising saying, like, well, what is going to happen? What's going to happen? What's going to happen? Oh, my God, this is so scary. And you said to me, listen, uh, just keep doing what you're doing. And your authentic self will bubble up from the subconscious. And that's 100% been my experience. It's just the authentic self continues to change into something different, right? <laughs> yeah, I left out that detail. <laughs> you didn't want to spoil it for me. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. For you, what's the edge right now in your practice, if you want to call it practice? So right now, one of the things that's been coming up is this uh, new relationship with anger. And I've really never had a relationship with anger And I've helped students and clients and friends and mentees through that process of their anger period. And it never happened for me. So so what does it mean to have no relationship to anger? I mean, I have no practice with it. Right. So you get angry or not angry, but you you mean you don't have a specific way of working with it? No, I wasn't really getting angry. Mm -hmm. I had like a few key moments in my life where I got angry. I get irritated or frustrated or, you know, annoyed, but I did not have access to actual anger. And, you know, you know me, you know my history. I have lots of reason to have the emotion of anger. You might. You might. (laughs) (laughs) Um, the anger's in my body, but it wasn't coming out in any kind of way that I could work with it. So I've been seeing this really wonderful therapist, and we've been working on that. And what's been happening is I'm accessing my anger, and I'm making messes. (laughs) (laughs) you know i'm like saying and doing all the wrong things Mm. by wrong i mean it's not the skillful thing it's not the the mindful thing it's the this is how i feel (laughs) um and it's wonderful and it's really good and i'm really glad that i'm getting this opportunity and that it's been this grace of being able to tap into this part of myself because i think it's had a huge impact on my life already but in honoring that self I don't want to dishonor others. Mm -hmm. So when I decide, oh, I'm going to tell this person how I really feel, it's not so emotionally responsible to do that in some wild freewheeling way. And so I've done that a few times where I've just sort of been like, blah. And the cool thing is, is that I'm not judging myself. I'm not upset with myself about it. Um, And I apologize. I always, you know, make an amends. But it's not necessarily how I want to operate. Yeah. It might not be the most skillful or most uh, illuminated version of how you'd like that to unfold. Yeah. And so it's new territory, though, right? It's just like when I started working around sexuality, that was new territory. And God knows, I made many fumbles. There were many times that I didn't act skillfully because I was learning a whole new instrument. And so this anger is a whole new instrument. Now, can I deconstruct it and see it for what it is? Yes. But then there's also honoring the human, the animal, the experience that's arising. Mm -hmm. And so beyond, let's say, the Vipassana version of deconstructing it, how else are you working with it? What tools are you bringing to bear on this anger? I wouldn't say that I'm necessarily bringing many tools other than just basic, you know, awareness of what's happening in the body and bringing in relaxation and breath. The way that I'm working with it is like just getting out of the way. Mm -hmm. And that's not even a conscious thing. Mm -hmm. It's sort of like when I speak or teach these days, I don't really have a choice about what I'm saying. (laughs) 
It's <laughs> like, that's just what's happening. Yeah. And it's the same thing with the anger. It's just like the resistance was released and now I just have to keep loving myself through it. Mm-hmm. I would say that's the practice. The practice is love. And are you finding a lot of or any other emotions that are coming up around the anger that were the original reason it was that you did not have a relationship to it or the original sort of blocking feelings like is there shame in there or? Yeah, there's all of that. The interesting thing, though, is it's almost like the fear was in its own little bubble. And I've done all this work around that bubble with shame and fear and grief. And now the bubble popped. And so it does bleed out into those areas, mm. but there's been so much time spent addressing those areas that they don't end up taking any work. They just do themselves mm-hmm. while I kind of take the ride. Yeah. Okay. Anything else? Yeah. So I always feel it's really important to say that there is not some right way to bring your spirituality into your sex life or to be mindful with sex. You don't need candles and a lotus flower in order to have mindful sex i like to say you can have spiritual mindful sex in a bathroom with a stranger if that's your thing and so i just want to be clear that this idea of bringing your spiritual practice and your sexuality together doesn't mean it then becomes this thing that's stagnant in some way or has to look a certain way or have a certain mood Exactly. It gets to be whatever it is, as long as it's consensual, you know, consenting adults. It gets to be whatever it is. And to just go on the ride. Again, it's such a brief little voyage we have here. And I think wasting one more second having mediocre or even slightly okay sex is, to me, it's a shame. And so I say, go on the ride. Don't try to get it right. And allow it to unfold. A lot of people are afraid, once I really tap into this part of myself, I'm going to lose my partner. Lose your marriage, lose your job. Yeah. Lose your religion. Yeah, and you might. Yeah. But if that's what wants to happen underneath everything anyway, (laughs) like, (laughs) What are you doing? Yeah. Yeah. And so it's just like, I'm not saying like, take it seriously, but take it seriously. Mm -hmm. Like, this is your one wild and precious life. Yeah. We don't know what happens. We don't know what happens tomorrow. I've been so many people. (laughs) I'm like, you know, if I would have known that I wasn't going to be that person, there are some things I would have done. Yeah. Like back when I was the person that did a lot of drugs and drank, I mean, there's some stuff I would have tried, you know, and like, (laughs) so be, be yourself, be the self that you are and see what that is moment to moment and how does your sexuality play out from there and you are not doing yourself or your partner any favors by shutting down parts of yourself Mm. by pretending they aren't there by trying to accommodate your partner in their insecurities or unconscious experience around sexuality i'm not saying be unkind i'm not saying push anybody but you need to step into what this animal what this human is alive around and your relationship is not worth much if you can't be the self that you are in the moment in it and so many people have that kind of relationship and i find it heartbreaking because it's not necessary thanks so much for being on the show jessica thanks for having me That's it for this episode of Deconstructing Yourself. I'd like to let you know about an upcoming retreat I have available in the first half of 2024. This April, I'll be teaching a six-day residential retreat at Mount Madonna Center in the hills of Northern California. From April 14th to the 19th, I'll be leading practitioners in non-dual meditation techniques, guided meditations, and silent sitting with the group. So if you'd like to spend six days working on deepening your spiritual practice and particularly working on your non-dual meditation with me and a group of interested folks, please consider joining me at Mount Madonna this April. Just go to the deconstructingyourself.com slash events page and follow the links you find there. I look forward to seeing you at the retreat. There will also be a meditation retreat with me coming up this August in Costa Rica. You can find out more about that 
at the same deconstructingyourself.com slash events page. If you enjoyed the podcast, please recommend it to a friend or talk about it on social media. Doing that helps it find its way to more people who might be interested. If you're moved to support the podcast, you can do that by contributing to the production costs on my Patreon page. That's at patreon.com slash Michael Taft. The money goes to support the recording, production, and bandwidth costs of this program, which are substantial. By contributing to Patreon, you're making it possible for me to continue to create and share these conversations as often as possible. A special perk for high-level contributors is a monthly or even bi-monthly event with me on Zoom, where you can ask me any meditation questions you have. I deeply appreciate your support. I also have a number of free resources for you, beginning with my YouTube channel. There are hundreds of hours of free guided meditations and videos there, so if you're interested, that's quite a large resource and offered to you completely free of charge. The channel address on YouTube is MWT111, or you can just search my name, Michael Taft. I encourage you to subscribe to the channel and join me each week for a new live guided meditation session. If you'd like to interact with a broad community of people interested in meditation, particularly those who engage with my YouTube meditations, I have a free Discord server called Deconstruct U. That's Deconstruct and then just the single capital letter U. There are a large number of discussion channels there and it's free, so hop on the server and introduce yourself. And of course, there's the deconstructingyourself.com website itself, which has articles, interviews, and more about meditation going back over 12 years at this point. So be sure to check that out. Beyond these free options, I also have a number of paid online courses to help you grow and develop in your spiritual practice. You can find out about those either by signing up for my email list at deconstructingyourself.com slash sign up or at the site deconstructingyourself.org. I look forward to seeing you in class. The Deconstructing Yourself podcast has always had excellent sound, which is the result of an amazing audio engineer and amazing human being named Stephen McNamara. He's an all-things audio person with many decades of experience in producing music and spoken word audio. If you're interested, you can contact him at his website, yogitar.com. That's Y-O-G-I-T-A-R dot com. Music on the Deconstructing Yourself podcast is a track by Peter Bauman entitled Crossing the Abyss from his album Machines of Desire. Thank you for listening.